full sentence that we are in the midst of studying. I want to keep doing this uh, as an exercise to remind us that we're really studying one complete thought. It's extensive and we're breaking it up into many sermons, but it's really one powerful presentation that Peter gives us and that we want to keep in mind. And so let us begin in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. So we have here before us this this presentation of the wonderful extent of the mercy of God toward us. He has called upon that to be uh, multiplied toward those that are uh, in Christ, the pilgrims of the dispersion, that grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then he moves into the mercy that is already our possession. And so I want you to notice that the passage begins by a statement, really a word that we use, referencing God in a state of thanksgiving. Blessed be the God and Father. Blessed be his name. This is the manner of thanksgiving, that we are blessing the name of God for what he has done for us, and then everything we have done from there on has been a rehearsal of the extent, the breadth, the width, the height of what exactly he has done for us that he has performed these things on our behalf, and that we have now opportunity to engage with him in them, as we have studied as well. And so we find that we have been begotten again by his mercy, that we have a living hope through his mercy and through the power of the resurrection, that we have an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled, a pure and an undamaged inheritance that is kept by him. But not only has he kept our inheritance intact, he is also at work keeping us uh, so that we could be the inheritors. And so not only is he working on one side, he's also keeping us through his power for salvation all the way to the end of this age, to the full reception of our salvation uh, in the end times and to the revelation of Jesus Christ. That all of this God has done, and it is not that we are simply passive, but as we have studied it, we are engaged in this process. As just as we came to him by faith, we walk by faith, not by sight, as we're going to see today extensively, that we are already laying hold of that which Christ has laid hold of us. That is, we are already 
uh, partakers of the heavenly blessing, Hebrews says, we are already tasted of the good things of God. And, and we do that by faith, by trusting in him. And that should be increasing day by day, week by week, month by month, as we uh, grow in our knowledge of him, as we grow in our understanding of his ways, as we encourage one another that we should be growing. And that should not satiate our interest in him ever. In fact, it intensifies our interest and our desire to know him more. And those that become satiated uh, with their knowledge of God that I know enough, and the word satiated is satisfied, with their knowledge of God that they know enough are those that are only engaging him intellectually and not by faith. That is, they're learning about God, but they're not bringing it into their lives, and therefore they don't have a sense of a, of a desire to know more, to, to engage in it on various levels of their life because it's only intellectual. And we realize that bringing these things into our lives is a, is a lifelong pursuit that isn't perfected in this world, cannot be. And so we pursue it, and we're going to talk about that pursuit a little bit today as well. But I just want to remind you at the outset here that this is all a declaration of thanksgiving. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That we are blessing his holy name as we study out these wonders of, of our salvation, especially its duration, that he, it will survive this age. And we'll go into the age to come and will last forever and ever. And this should be a place of encouragement for you and a place of comfort and a place that calls us to thanksgiving as we're going to be reminded of it again today. We talked last week extensively about this relationship between trials and your faith and your joy and the necessity of proving faith. Uh, and the term Peter uses here is the genuineness. Is my faith genuine? Or is it a contrived one? Is it a misplaced one? Is it, is it one that is superficial? Uh, is it, as John talked about, that, that uh, I believe in you, but I don't really believe in you? Uh, I can still be made your enemy. The Hebrews talks about that. We looked at various passages and the various terminology used of the necessity of having our faith tested to be uh, confident in it. That if we want to have confidence in our faith, it has to be tested. And so uh, the, the prime example, I didn't give many examples last week, uh, probably the prime example of the, where we're really in, introduced into this concept, it's not that it was new then, uh, it was certainly there already before, but it's the one that keeps being repeated in God's word, is the faith of Abraham. Because Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Well, what was the evidence of his faith? His evidence of his faith was that it endured testing. And that testing happened uh, sometimes by the work of God, that God says, take your son, your only son, and take him up the mountain and sacrifice him to me. Let me test your faith. I'm going to put you through the ringer on purpose. Because, and I have an expectation uh, that you are going to pass this. I'm going to give you an opportunity to demonstrate your faith in me. And we can go there and we see Abraham raising up the knife with his son on the altar there, ready to sacrifice him before the Lord, before the Lord stops him. He was that close. He was ready to plunge that knife and to take that life of his son Isaac, the son of promise. 
And we find that this is the test of his faith. And what, even if he had plunged the knife, the evidence is that Abraham believed God. That if you want my child to be sacrificed, that you have the power to resurrect him, if necessary. You have the power to bring another child into our life, even at this age, uh, advanced age that they were at. And so Abraham was willing to believe God, and that tested faith is what is credit for righteousness. As we go through Hebrews 11, we see over and over again, what is it that demonstrated the power of faith was the crisis in which it was strengthened. It was evidenced. It was shown. And the fact is that crisis is the necessity of growing faith. That we trust God. That without the crisis, our faith is always questionable. Because we always can say, well, it's, I'm going, I would never do that. Well, you can say that all you want, but so far, it's simply an exercise of your profession without being an exercise in actual activity. So we go through Hebrews 11, and we say some of those people uh, were blessed, some of them died. But they all trusted Christ in the midst of the Christ's of life. And that is the measure of their faith. That is the evidence. That is the substance of faith. And therefore, instead of trying to avoid crisis, instead of trying to avoid suffering, instead of trying to avoid trouble and, and, and conflict of the world moving against us, we should be ready to embrace it. That as it comes, we glorify God, that this is my opportunity for my, test to be, for my faith to be tested, to be increased, to be evidenced. I can point to it and say, there's my faith. I don't have to talk about it. I can point to it and say, see it? There it is. There's my faith. I trust in you. And this should bring great rejoicing, verse 6 says, that even though we have sorrow in the midst of trials, we do not, uh, we're not happy about that, but we understand the necessity of it and we rejoice at the conclusion of it. And that's really the whole focus of this sentence, is that we are, have our view beyond what is going on today and looking at its goal. And remember yes, last week, our example of Christ, who looked beyond the suffering of the cross to see what it would accomplish for us, which is salvation. So for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. For the joy set before us, we endure, and we endure it, uh, not barely and not with grumbling, complaining. We endure it uh, as a measure of something that's going to benefit us in the end, at the conclusion. And that requires us to set our eyes beyond the immediate crisis, to look far beyond it. Not just, well, how is this going to work out for my good? And yes, we have a wonderful passage there in Romans that says that God will work all things out uh, for the good of those that are, love him are called according to his purposes. Yes, that is true. Usually when we view that, that passage, we think it's going to work out in this world. We insert those words, really, in our mind as we are reading and thinking about that concept that all things are going to work out for our good. That somehow that means that in the end that we're going to have a happy uh, chapter, of, a happy ending to the chapter of our life instead of the book of our life. In other words, we're looking for each chapter to end happily, whether it's this week, this month, this year, uh, instead of the book and looking for a happy ending at the very end. 
of it. And so that is the promise of God, and that brings us great rejoicing if we keep our perspective there, if we keep our view there, and that's what Peter's trying to do to his readers who are in the midst of a crisis. They're being scattered abroad, they're being, and that's not by choice. They're being hunted. They're being chased. They're being driven out of cities. And that time may be coming very soon in, in this generation. And hence, these words are very precious to us that we can endure all of that without uh, wanting revenge, without wanting to get uh, to, to uh, be involved in violence and, and doing wickedness, but rather we can receive it, we can love those who do injury to us, we can uh, desire after their salvation, even while they're trying, desiring after our demise, and we can do it with joy because we view beyond it. We are, we are, we are perspective is so much farther in the horizon that we just look right past these things. And you do that all the time. Uh, in fact, when I teach my children to drive and I have them sit at the wheel, the very first lesson they have to learn is don't look in front of the car. And for each one of them, I realized, well, with the first one, I didn't realize it right away. I was like, why is she doing this? Cause, and I'm like, oh, she's looking right here instead of out there. And from then on, the first thing, I sat on behind the wheel. Now, do not look at where the front of the car is. Because if you look there, you'll be driving all over the place. You look way out there where you're going. You look as far down the road as you can see, and you keep your eyes there, and if you're steering for where you're going, your car will go straight. If you look straight down in front of you, and by the way, it works for walking and bicycle riding and everything. You do like this, you tend to run into stuff and go crooked. You just do. You have to keep your eyes up. You've got to keep your eyes forward and looking ahead. And the same thing is true in your spiritual life. And we have too many Christians walking around with their head down. Spiritually, why are we like this? And we're all discouraged and, oh, we're anxious and nervous because we're just looking at today, this week, this, this election cycle, whatever. <laughs> this shutdown. And we're looking around like this and instead of keeping our eyes up and saying, well, there's the, pri there's the objective, there's the goal, there's the end. That's the finish line. Not the end of this week, this month. No. Finish line's way out there. And when I set my eyes there, everything between here and there just kind of worked themselves out. Because I'm trusting in the one who holds my future in Jesus Christ. And that's repeated throughout this sentence. We've already seen that we're going to be revealed in the last time. That's going to be the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's going to be when Christ is revealed in his glory. And all of these things that the angels want to look into, we're going to talk about that way down the road. So the genuineness of our faith is something we are anticipating. But we want to focus on the end of verse 7 and verse 8 now. Now that we understand what is being held for us and how we are being preserved for that day and that our faith is part of that process and that our faith needs to grow. And we, I didn't get to engage the last, verse, that last part of verse 7. I want to do that today. And uh, then we're going to press into... Verse 8, the other fact. Now remember, all of this is derived or associated with the abundant mercy that we have received from God. 
This is all a statement of thanksgiving for the abundant mercy we have received from God. So this is just an expression of his mercy. Each one of these has been his merciful actions towards us. His grace, peace, mercy, all being uh, abundantly applied to us as part of being born again ones, begotten again ones. And so we find it here that uh, your faith is going to be more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. And we talked about the necessity of having that uh, purification of our faith, that, that uh, improvement upon it over and over again. Please notice its ultimate goal may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we're going to now shift our focus to Jesus Christ. Last week, week four, we talked more about our faith being engaged. And now we're going to look at the one who is the object of our faith, Jesus Christ. And, but I want you to notice that as our faith improves, it is not to your glory, honor, and praise. It is to the praise, honor, and glory of Jesus Christ. That it is he who gets the praise as, we, uh, as our faith grows and is tested and it becomes more and more evident, more and more obvious, uh, that it is the proof of our salvation, of our sonship, that as that occurs in our life, that one of the strongest things that, that will multiply in your life is the desire that God get the glory for that, and that requires these three elements. And we're going to talk about these three. I would love to spend a sermon on each of these elements, but we're already breaking down a sentence into really small components, so we're not going to break it down anymore. So here we go. We're going to talk about these three very quickly. And, uh, and in the order that they're given to us, found to the praise, may, may found to praise at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to praise him. And this is the work of your lips. This is the, the, the vocalization of what God has done, that we speak about it, that we communicate it, that we sing about it, and, and let's go through some passages. Let's look at some of this. Um, uh, do I have time to go through all those? No. As we go through various psalms, after we go through the various uh, declarations, mostly at the Paul and some of the, he has these high prosections of his books that he goes through and he gives praise, glory, honor to Jesus Christ. Uh, we, we recognize, hopefully, that the praise part is with our lips. That when we gather, we're going to talk about it, we're going to sing about it, we're going to communicate it, we're going to remind it. This is so necessary. It isn't just an attitude of our heart. It needs to be a, uh, the verbiage needs to be coming from our lips, from our tongue. We need to be giving praise to God. So when we have a time like tonight to give testimony to what God has done for us, we should stand up and praise his name. And it's not that everything is going wonderful and comfortably, but rather, uh, and, and that's usually what we think of, but what we, our praise sessions should be, I am so thankful that I have had this crisis come into my life that my faith in God might increase. I don't hear very many testimonies like that. I am so thankful that I'm here in 2020 enduring all this nonsense. I am really tired of people, and even Christian people, complaining about this year on Facebook or their other social media. I don't have the other social media, so I assume they're doing it elsewhere too. Oh, we can't wait till 2020 is over. 
What is your problem? I'm pretty sure the Bible says you must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. You want to get to heaven? This is the path. And its absence should bother us. When things are just smoothing around, toiling on there, and it's just coasting through, and we have a Christian age, then we kind of know that the end isn't quite yet, right? Isn't that what Jesus says? The end isn't yet. But when we have things like this happening worldwide, I mean, this is throughout the whole earth, the face of the earth, all of the earth is saying, oh, we can't wait until 2020 is over. I'm like, this is kind of exciting. I'm kind of charged up about 2020. This is a banner year. I've been waiting for this one. I've been waiting for this. Haven't you? And 2021 is going to be no improvement because I know God's word. It's going to get worse. You think 2020 is something? Wait until 2021 comes. I don't care who's the president. <laughs> Because the Bible says when this starts, it's not going to end until Christ comes and brings it to a close. And we recognize that, and now is our opportunity to step up to the plate and express our faith and to show our joy. To show who we trust in. And now I get to say that I, I'm trusting in God. How do I demonstrate that? I demonstrate that trusting God by my participation in obedience to his word and everything, uh, regardless of what the world says I can and cannot do, God says, do this, I do it. Will there be a consequence? Probably. Will I complain about it? Unfortunately, I might, but then just slap me if I do. Because I've been looking forward to this chance to stand up and to live out my faith when it is not just inconvenient, and that's the problem in our country, it's been too convenient to be a Christian. Now it's becoming inconvenient. Look at how many are falling away. Not just inconvenient, but dangerous. It's going to become dangerous to live your faith. Now is the test of our faith. Now is the evidence. Now we get to show it. In other countries, they've had that privilege uh, for generations where they have showed their faith by laying down their lives, by, by losing all of their property, by all those things, now we get this. But it is by the praise of our lips that we give glory to God. Let's not complain about it. Let's give glory to God for it. Praise the Lord. Let your lips praise Him. So when we have praise here, it involves your lips. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. Uh, well, let, let me, I, I'm avoiding these things. Let's go ahead. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. I can't do this without letting you in on all these verses. It's just selfish of me. Philippians 1, let's look at verse 11. Let's back up to verse 9 so we get the context. Uh, and this I pray that your love, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. You see the conclusion part of it? We're still talking about, I want to be sincere, genuine, without wax, literally, um, and without offense, that is, I don't want to displease God till the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.11. All right, so I want to 
get that far. Now look at the next verse. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The fruits of righteousness. And so why don't I want to engage my mouth in complaining and, and griping and gossiping and doing all those evil things with my mouth? Because I want my mouth to be praising God and it's one of the major fruits of righteousness is that if I'm righteous, I want to speak truth. I want to speak uh, kindness. I want, I, my tongue is the rudder of my life, right? James tells us. So we should be speaking these things to God's praise. So we should have lives of righteousness, fruits of righteousness in our lives as the evidence of our faith, and that is to the praise of Jesus Christ. I want to praise God by how I live and by what I say. And let's go to uh, Revelation. I want to take you to Revelation chapter 7. Because I, 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 this is an observation for you. Uh, this is your Thanksgiving observation. Here you go. I don't think I've taught this in the past. So this is a new one for you. As you know, I've studied a lot on the songs of Revelation. I've really focused in on them. Uh, and I want to share with you something about this one song. It's the song in Revelation 7, verse 12. And, well, let's read it. It says, and the people singing this song are the angels, the elders, the living creatures, uh, four living creatures, the 24 elders, the angels. They are responding. This is, you know, have you ever had responsive reading, responsive songs? This side sings something and we sing in response. Well, the, the multitude that arrives in heaven from all tribes, nations, peoples, tongues that are clothed with white robes and have palm branches cry with a loud voice in verse 10, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we arrive in heaven. This is right after the rapture. We arrive in heaven. This is all the saints there gathered together proclaiming that salvation uh, belongs to our God who sits on the throne of the Lamb. We are there. And now the angels, 24 elders, and the four living creatures in response to that declaration, have this song saying, Amen. <laughs> we approve that message. Okay, Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You might say, well, that's a very similar song. And you're actually correct. It is very similar to the songs that were there were in chapter 4, which is before the death of Christ, about creation. The songs in chapter 5 with Jesus Christ arriving in heaven, the blessing, honor, glory, power, those kinds of terms. But there is one term that is used here that is not found in those other songs. And that term is thanksgiving. It's, it's an added term. Because now, with us arriving in heaven, something has added to the song list of heaven. And that is the concept of thanksgiving. So they give glory, honor, all these things, power uh, to God over creation. Uh, and now, uh, with, the, with the arrival of Christ in power and taking the throne there in chapter 5, glory, honor, blessing to him and, uh, because he has conquered through his shed blood, but we come to when we arrive in heaven that there is an added word of thanksgiving. The declaration of salvation belongs to our God that we give when we get up there into the Lamb, uh, to the God, God who sits on the throne, to the Lamb, 
is a declaration of thanksgiving where we declare with our mouths what we are experiencing in our midst and the heavenlies respond and they add this term in, thanksgiving has arrived in heaven. That when we arrive in heaven, thanksgiving is arriving in heaven. And so this is the praise that I believe should be on our lips because we are the we are the vessels, we are the carriers of thanksgiving. Jesus Christ didn't die for the angels. He didn't die for the 24 hours. He didn't die for the, them. He died for us. But we weren't in heaven yet. When we arrive in force in heaven, the resurrected ones, it says now thanksgiving is here. They gave honor. They gave power. But all those words, were some of them, we'd love to study all of those, but when the church arrives is when you have thanksgiving because we are the recipients of his mercy. We are the ones that are giving thanks. The angels marvel at it. In fact, Peter says that. Angels want to look into it. They marvel at it, but they aren't the recipients of it. They can talk about it, but they can't be thankful because they haven't, they haven't experienced it. It's not for them. God's mercy is for us. When we arrive in heaven, thanksgiving arrives in heaven. We add another element to the worship of heaven when we, the thankful people, and if it's true of heaven, it should be true of our worship services on earth. That when we gather together, thanksgiving is there because of the abundant mercy of God that we have experienced at his hand, even though it's future and we don't see it yet, we can still give him praise our lips expressing our faith in him and showing it to the world this is the praise element and then there is the honor that of of lifting him up and again let me go to hebrews take me back over to hebrews chapter 2 with this next word i've spent way too long on praise uh hebrews chapter 2 and again uh Look at verse 9. I'm, I don't have time for the context here. Um, we're actually going to be reading Psalm 8 that's quoted earlier anyway here in a little bit. It says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. I want you to see the relationship between suffering and honor and glory for that matter, do you see that it is his, for suffering of death, he was crowned with glory and honor. Because he didn't die for himself, he died for you. He died for everyone. It is an expression of the grace of God, and for that, God is exalted, and the honoring is about exaltation. That we exalt God in our life, that we honor him. If we want to honor someone, we set them apart, we say, they're, they're, they, we want to give honor to that. We want to recognize that. It's recognition. And heaven itself honors Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice as the greatest act of God, even greater than creation, which is why we are here on the Lord's Day and not on the Sabbat. Because he has, he has done greater than that. So let's go to Psalm chapter 8. Let's go to Psalm chapter 8 that Hebrews lists there. We could look at it there in Hebrews, but let's go to Psalm 8. Because I want to see a little bit wider context than the author of Hebrews is talking about. 
Psalm chapter 8. Verse 3 says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? For you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and honor. I want you to notice that the one he's talking about is the man and the son of man. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. That while we look at Jesus Christ particularly and his suffering, I want you to notice that God has already given you both glory and honor because... He has given you special attention. That as soon as we receive special attention from God, particularly this is referring to our image-bearingness, that we are the image-bearers of God. We bear His image, His reflection in us. And when we exercise that image, we exercise something that God honored us with, and now we get to honor Him with it. And this is the Christian life. That God has honored me, now I want to take that honor and put it upon him that he has granted it to me. And so, whenever we want to honor someone, it's kind of interesting, we give out awards, and we always give the person we want to honor with an award an opportunity to get up to a podium like this and to give a speech. And what is normally, normally, I don't say always, should always be, but normally, the first handful of words out of them, I want to thank The Academy. I want to thank the, I don't know, whoever selects the Pro Bowlers. I want to thank the committee. I want to thank whatever body it was that gave them the honor. Well, we have the honor of being the image bearers of Christ. We should be willing to stand up and say, I want to thank the God of the heavens that gave me, granted me this honor. We should do that with our lips. Grant honor. We should do that with our very lives. How do we do that? By exercising his image the way, he, the way he intended for us to do. And the psalmist tells us how we're supposed to do it. That we are supposed to have dominion over the works of God's hands. This is not my creation. It's God's creation that I have authority over. And I'm supposed to be taking care of it as its manager. Not its owner. It's manager. And so... Uh, this week we purchased a property, you guys all know that. And so now I, I am now the manager, I'm not the owner. I know the, I know the world says I'm the owner of that property because I have the title. Um, it's God owns the earth, okay? It's all his, right? You knew that? I hope. <laughs> uh, I'm the manager now for that property. And boy, it's a lot of work. But you could tell when someone's a really poor manager, can't you? It's evident. It's evident that if you're not managing a property, it just you can see disorder, you can see chaos, you can see ugliness come upon it. That when we come with proper management, uh, that we are really giving honor to the one who has honored us. So if we want to honor God with what he has honored us with, we will exercise dominion the way he wants us to. That we will... Uh, Put it under our feet because God has granted us authority and therefore we should exercise that to his glory, to his honor, to his praise. And so we have this 
concept here that we have been crowned with glory and honor, that God has shared something with us, and our first response should be, I want to honor you and thank you for what you have done for me. And this is essentially what Peter is putting into practice here at the, in this verse, in 1 Peter 1. That we give honor, we elevate it, we, we, we recognize, we give recognition that all things are from him, that we might be obedient and work toward him. And then the third word used here in, in 1 Peter 1, 7 is glory. We are to give glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And glory is almost always associated with light. So let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. And we were just there in Hebrews 2. You might say, why didn't you just have us do it there? Because it didn't follow my schedule. So you have to follow the outline. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 1, God, who at various times and various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in the last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. You see the heir through whom he also made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and the upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And again, we've talked about the inheritance and all of that, but I want you to notice that which is the evidence of God's blessing. It says he is the brightness of glory. Glory has always been associated with light. So when Moses was in the glory of the Lord, uh, and he walked away, he had to shield his eyes, he had to turn away. It's because the glory of God is so bright. It is always associated with brightness. And that's why heaven is such a brilliant place. Everyone who goes there talks about it was just so bright. Every biblical author. Well, Moses had exposure on earth to that kind of glory, the Shekinah glory. The glory was so bright that the priests, the high priests, couldn't stand and had to run out of the temple when the Shekinah glory came upon the temple. Moses, having seen, talked with God face to face, it says that the people couldn't see the reflected glory of God off his face. That his face shined. That's why Moses, is, if you ever see, it should be completely white because there's just no color left. There is just brightness. And so we have this complete brightness. It says it was so bright, they asked him to walk around with a veil. There's the first burqa. Okay? So he had to walk around with his, with his head covered. A veil on his face because people couldn't look at him. It was like, oh, that when we walk into a room, people talk about the brightness that came with us. That we are giving glory to God. There's a brightness to this activity. And so thanksgiving should be that which generates glory to God, which should be a brightness. When you think of glory, think of brightness. Uh, and he talks about the brightness. Jesus Christ was the brightness of his glory, that we look upon him as the highlight of it all. And again, at the transfiguration, what are they confronted with? Well, here's, here's Moses representing the law. Here's Elijah representing the prophets. Here's Jesus. And we're in this glorified state. Well, what does that mean? It means it was full of light. And you can go through and look at all the depictions of heaven that you have in Scripture, and you see it filled with light. And this is what we are to bring to God, to Jesus Christ, 
by the exercise of our genuine faith, a tested faith. Oh, that we would go through crises in our life and say, let God's name be praised with my lips in the midst of us. And, and that's why the Bible says, do all things without murmuring or complaining, uh, because that's the opposite of praising God. We're to be praising him with our lips. We are to be honoring him with the exercise of our authorities. That as we have dominion in the earth, to the extent that we have that, we should be doing that to God's honor. That I'm doing this as his representative on earth, as his ambassador, as his manager, his steward. And so I do that work, that work of, of bringing things into order to his honor. I do it to honor God, not to bring praise to myself. And then that I might, by my thanksgiving, bring glory, light upon the world, the light of Jesus Christ. And that glory should be evident in us. It is no mistaking that when angels show up, it says the glory of the Lord. All right, remember those shepherds that night? That, wow, the whole light, the whole sky lights up because of the glories of heaven, the light. And there should be a, a light that should just be evident when we walk. You hear, we have an expression, right? They light up the room, right? So when they walk in, they light up the room. And that usually means that they're a social butterfly or something, they make everybody happy. But when Christians walk into rooms, they should light it up. Always. I don't care what your personality trait is. Because we have an understanding of the abundant mercy that we receive from God. Now, can I do that? No, because I'm like you. I struggle, but I try. You should light up a room. Not with your personality, but with the mercy of God communicated through you. You should be the glory of God in people's lives. You should light up their life because you understand the extent of God's mercy, and your faith has been tested, it's been purified by fire, it has been made genuine, it has been proven, it can be evidenced now, it can be touched, it can be seen, it can be heard, and so it can bring light, and it's interesting that this is related to the revelation, which is revealing to show, the showing of Jesus Christ. And so our lips, our dominion, our countenance itself ought to all point to the revelation of Jesus Christ in our life. This is the evidence of his mercy. Now, what is the foundation of this? And I only have a few minutes. All of that was extra, okay? That was all left over from last week. So now we're going to get into this week's sermon. All right? And that is in verse 8. Whom having not seen, you love. Now, this is a phrase attached to the person Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 1. So he just got done talking about the revelation of Jesus Christ. And now he's going to have a little participial phrase to communicate to you, a little one, <laughs> to tell you about Jesus Christ. Who? The who there is Jesus, who you haven't seen, yet you love him. Yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory... Receiving the end of the faith, the salvation of your souls. And this I want to uh, key in on today. That this is the love that you are called, that, that uh, assists us in praising, honoring, glorifying God. Is that we love the one even though we have not 
seen him. That we have not set eyes upon him, and yet we love him. Is that possible? We talk about love at first sight. We have love before we've seen him. That trumps love at first sight. Think about that a little bit. We love the one whom we have not seen. And this is not to our disadvantage. This is to our credit. Paul, Peter credits them. You, you haven't seen him, yet you love him. And though you do not now see him, yet believing. So we, these people didn't see Jesus die on the cross. They didn't see a resurrected Lord. Peter did. But he says, you didn't see what I saw, but you still love him like I love him. And even though you didn't see him die on the cross, you didn't see him resurrected, you didn't see the miracles, you still believe in him. What is Peter communicating? That your faith might even be greater than his own. Peter saw all those things and got, you know, see it, believe it. You know, and remember Thomas, you know, come here, touch this, see this, touch here. Uh, so you can believe. And what does Jesus say? Blessed are those who will not see and yet believe. That's you and me. We haven't seen it, but we believe it. And we love him who we have not seen. Do we love the Lord that we have not seen? This is, to our, this is the expression of faith. And we should be rejoicing uh, and have joy ex- expressible and full of glory because we have this evidence of genuine faith. This further confidence. Well, I love the Lord. And let's make sure we're defining that properly. The Lord Jesus who died on the cross, not how you communicate, not how you created Jesus, because I always have to be careful because people walk around and say, I love Jesus. I was like, who's he? I say, Pastor, you really ask people, who is he? Well, if they say that to me and I don't, I'm kind of not picking up the right evidences in their life. Well, I love Jesus. I was like, well, who is he? Because there's lots of Jesuses out there in this day and age, right? You understand that. So when a Mormon comes up to you and says, I love Jesus, their Jesus is a very different Jesus than my Jesus. When a, when a Muslim comes up to you and says, we love Jesus, we believe in Jesus, their Jesus is very different than my Jesus. It's a still the same historical person, but they have painted him in a completely different picture, making him a different Jesus. All right? The, Mus- the Muslim Jesus is not the Son of God, not God incarnate. Though they agree with a lot of the historical things that we associate with Jesus. They deny the cardinal doctrine that he is God in the flesh, God with us. The Mormon Jesus was a man who became God, not God who became a man. They've completely reversed him. And they love Jesus. Why do they love a man that became God? Because they're all trying to become gods. Okay? So when someone says to me, I love Jesus, I go, who is that? Because I need to know what Jesus are talking about. And so when we communicate to people and we, and we have this in us, do we love the Lord our God? The 
Not the one that we have created in our mind. Uh, not the one that, you know, and I don't know if you have portraits or pictures of Jesus. My dad was, was vehemently against any visual portrayal of Jesus Christ. I remember we had a little plaque that had a verse on it, and he scratched out the thing because it had a portrayal. <laughs> we still kept the plaque. I don't know why. <laughs> I'll scratch out the visual portrayal of Jesus. Uh, that's not Jesus. That's not what he looked like. Um, but we liked the verse on the plaque, I guess. And, but it was a reminder every day in that house that it's not Jesus that I create in my image. It's the Jesus that I, whose image I carry. He is the expressed image of the Father, and we are in his image, not him in our image. So when we talk about this, that while we have not seen him, that we remove some of the baggage that has come with us of who this Jesus is, and receive him as God's word declares him, and with all the cardinal truths surrounding him, that is this Jesus that you must love. And not just say you love, but genuinely show that love for him. Greater love has no man than this, and to lay down his life. Have you laid, do you love God enough to lay down your life for him? Because that's the greatest love, according to Jesus' statement. Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friend. Jesus showed it to us, expects us to show our reciprocating love, and that is, I haven't seen you, yet I love you, which means I'm willing to die for you. Remember, we're in the context of a sentence that's talking about your suffering to improve your faith. Can your faith be improved upon dying? That's a really strong question. It can be improved as you are dying. And I have a great example of that in God's Word. There was a guy that was preaching, 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 and he didn't preach to the Jews, he preached to the Hellenists, and his preaching was so effectual that everyone, that the Jews started hating him. And a guy named Saul of Tarsus uh, gathered some of his cronies together, and they started stoning this guy to death. His name's Stephen. You know the story now, right? So Stephen is being stoned to death. Was his faith there? Was it growing? Oh, it was growing to the point that what did he see? He saw the glory of God in heaven, and what did he do with his lips? He praised what he saw. He communicated it to everybody. Was just in, that was as he's praying, as he's preaching, and and they're just going to throw stones on him and just stone him to death. But he sees them. His statement is, "Let not this be." They don't, you know. He, he's all communicating all of this in the midst of his death. His faith is just enveloped in it. You can point to his words. You can hear them. You can hear his faith. You can see it as a, the tranquility on his mind, on his face, even as he was being stoned to death and enduring the pain because he had his faith on a different land, an enduring land, an inheritance that was undefiled and incorruptible that was reserved in heaven for him. His faith was increasing by the moment. And God honored that, for he had honored God with his very life. Do we love God like that? We want to believe that we do. But if we cannot honor God by obeying him in small things, what makes you think that you're going to show your love for God when it becomes difficult things? It's a small thing to exercise a little social disobedience now and then and go meet together uh, when 
the governor tells you not to. Okay, that's a pretty small thing. It really is. Okay, I've been in countries where people are meeting together uh, with the reality that at any time the government would come in and drag them away to prison or worse. Okay, I've been there. I've driven by the building. They wouldn't let us stop because we would endanger them. But they just said, that's where the believers are. They're meeting right now. But we're not even going to slow down. That's where they are. They entrusted us with that information in that country of Cuba. Meeting in the dead of night. Knowing that they were not just violating a governor's order, they were risking their very lives. At least their liberty for being there. Do you love him who you have not seen? The greatest expression of that is that are we willing to lay down our life? And it's easy to say I'm willing to lay down my life for him, but that means not just living, what we really mean by that, I'm willing to lay down my death for him, but we aren't going to live our life for him. Are you going to live your life for him, not just give him your death? And in China, the pastors that have survived and, and continue to deal with the persecution say, the, the, our brethren, our, the people who came before us who were, who were martyred, they, ha- they had the best. They're saying they had it easy. It was easier because they haven't had to go through all of this. You know? And so now, are you willing to serve him for 30, 40 years under oppression and not just a week and a half and then be killed? So do we love him enough to lay down our life for him? And that means to surrender. To lay down your life is to surrender. And we have that song, I surrender all. I, I give it up. And it's not just I surrender my death, but do I surrender my stuff? Do I surrender my time? Do I surrender my resources? Do I surrender my will to his? Do I love the Lord like that? Peter says, you haven't seen him, but you loved him. You love him. You haven't seen him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. The light of, of, of the glory of heaven is full in you. The joy you can't hardly even express. Do you see it? With your lips you will praise him. With your authority you will honor him. With your light, your countenance, you will glorify him. And these same themes he wants to develop. And it says, this is your expression of your love for God. This is your expression of your belief in God that you have rejoicing. That your joy through all this suffering, through all the crisis, through all the antagonism that you confront, through all the, the uh, risks that are involved in this world, keep your eyes way down the road on where you're really going, what your destination is, and you'll be able to do all of this, uh, not just to get through it, but to do it with joy and rejoicing, with your lips praising God, with your authorities serving God, and with your countenance evidencing God everywhere you go. This is the faith that God wants you to have. And I believe it comes down to being a thankful people, to being content with such things as we have. And why do I 
point to that so much. Not just because this is the, this is the Lord's Day before Thanksgiving Day. Um, obviously, I didn't schedule this in accordance with the schedule. You know that. I, I preach verse by verse and book by book, and, and I really have a totally different perspective on this, but the Lord enabled us to have this series the month before our nation celebrates Thanksgiving Day. But for the Christian, every day should be Thanksgiving Day. And so here we are, having an opportunity to talk about Thanksgiving contentment as the core of rejoicing. Because I understand the abundant mercy that I have received, the extent of it, the fullness of it. And so I'm not just getting through crisis, I am actually conquering to the glory of God. And and Thanksgiving is what keeps the joy there. And I can actually be thankful that I am having problems in my life to remind me that this is not my home, to strengthen the, and to prove my faith and the genuineness of it. And am I always perfect in accomplishing that? No, I'm still on the same road you are, fighting this fight, wanting my faith to increase, wanting to see it grow and strengthen and proven and evident that people can point to it, say, there it is, we see it. But in the midst of all this, I want to rejoice. While we say it's inexpressible, we're still going to say it as much as we can, which means that every time I talk about it is not enough. Doesn't mean I'm not going to say anything. It means I can't say enough. But the joy is so extensive, so deep, so wide, so broad, so so uh, extensive in my life that I, I can't say enough. It can't fully be expressed. Oh, that we would have that kind of rejoicing in our life and that kind of fullness of glory. Again, put upon the person that we love, having not seen. Not an imaginary character, not contrived by men and flipped around from God's word, but the Jesus of the scriptures. God made flesh who dwelt among us and offers us full salvation. This is the end of our faith. This is what we have. And let us recognize the blessed condition we are in to have an opportunity to show a love for someone we've never seen, but fully believe in, and will lay down our life for. This is genuine faith. Let's pray.